So when we first had, had kids, my wife and I, uh, we've been married um, going on 29 years, and uh, we have four kids. And uh, when we first had kids, uh, I know I don't even look 29, right? Like you're just going, how is it possible? You don't look a day over 28. Uh, but when we first had kids, I remember being really, really excited for my kids to start talking. Anybody remember that when you had your baby and you just couldn't wait and they're crawling and they're, it's gibberish and you want to be able to communicate with them and you're so stoked and you just can't wait for them to start talking. And then like a year later, you feel bad, but you kind of wish that they would just sort of shut up sometimes, like just for like five minutes, just stop talking for like five minutes, please, for the love, just don't say anything for five minutes. Because once they start talking, they never stop, right? And on top of it, they ask tons of questions, and they have no filter because they're kids. And so they say things in public sometimes that are embarrassing and don't, like, aren't really like, socially appropriate. Um, we've had so many of those experiences with our kids over the years. So my oldest son, he's turning 23, and when he was little, um, there, there was a time, remember we... Remember when, like, malls were a thing, and we all went to the mall and would walk around? Like, I, don't, I know there's still a mall here, but who goes to the mall? Uh, let me introduce you to the thing called Amazon. Uh, so, but we were at the mall walking around, and there was this person that was just, there's some other people that were just sort of there, kind of milling around, and, uh, and they were dressed kind of funky, dressed kind of weird, and our, our son, at the time, he was like two or three years old, and he was like pointing at those, and he's like, why are those people wearing that, Daddy? Is that a poor person right there? And, you know, because they're kids, they have no volume control, and people turn and look, and they judge you, right? Like, there's been moments like that in the grocery store, and you just kind of want to, like, push the cart away and just be like, whose kid is that? I don't know. And, and you don't have to be a parent to have witnessed or experienced a, a really embarrassing or kind of cringy moment with a kid um, be, because they don't know which questions and which conversations are off limits yet. And so they just will say whatever comes to their head. And depending on how you grew up, there are different categories of things that fall, there are different things that fall into that category of things that you just shouldn't talk about, whether it's sex or addiction or death and loss or different sort of family issues that are going on with your family. And what's interesting is that for most of us, money's kind of in that category. Like we just, yeah, I mean, it's a real part of life, but we just, Really don't want to talk about that. Shh, that don't no. Don't talk about that. And, and we pick up on it early on. And the message that most kids get about money is that it's really, really important, but it's inappropriate to talk about. Which obviously, when you're a kid, it's kind of really confusing. You don't know what to do with that. So a few years ago, there was a New York Times reporter that asked for parents to send in questions that their kids had asked them about money. And here are some of the ones that came in. It, it, one, one said, why, why do people ask for money at red lights? That's an interesting question, right? Like one, one kid said, should we give our second car to somebody who doesn't have one? One kid said, how come we don't get to go to Europe? That, that's what I'm asking. How come we don't get to do that? Are we going to run out of lunch and snacks because you lost your job? Who makes more, you mom or does dad? Are we poor? Who do we know that's rich? I remember one time my son was in his room and he came out, he was like 10 years old. And he said, dad, do we know anybody with a private plane? And I was like, what? No, what are you talking about? He's like, okay. And he went back, I don't know what he was working on. 
And then my favorite question that got submitted was, why are puppies so expensive? This is a great question. And as parents and adults, often our response to kids when they have questions, the response of my parents and my family growing up when it comes to stuff about money is usually something like, look, that's none of your business. You don't need to worry about that. You don't need to think about that kind of stuff. Just don't, just forget about it. It's none of your business. We're not gonna talk about it. But the truth is like feeling financially secure is their business, right? And they're already worried about it and interested in it. If you have kids, this really isn't news to you. Like we're, we're all interested in money, how it works and what it can do. And it starts actually when we're really young. Uh, about five or six years ago, there was a University of Michigan study where they said as a result of that study, they said that, that our thoughts and our attitudes about money start forming as young as three and four years old. And often the thoughts and attitudes that we form when we're at three and four years old actually stick with us and into, uh, into adulthood and form how we think about ourselves and about money and what it's for and what it's not for. But most of us grow up not really knowing where to take those questions or those worries or what do we do with those thoughts. And, and so we're left to just sort of figure it out on our own. And, and a lot of us don't like talking about money because it was always a fight and there was always tension around it in our house growing up. Like our parents argued and there never seemed to be enough. Like that's actually how it was in my family. And if you grew up in a family like that, it's easy to look at money through the lens that says, well, the answer to all of this is really simple. The answer is just having more, making more, saving more, having more. The answer to all the questions when it comes to what is the problem for money is, with money is like, it's just more. One of the memes that I enjoy online is actually about winning the lottery. You may have seen this. Uh, and, and the meme starts out and says, I wouldn't tell anybody I won the lottery, but there would be signs and hints. And then there's a picture of some silly things over the top of some ridiculous, expensive things. And, and, and this was actually the one, I put this one together because this was, and I felt like it was like a commentary on my age. Because when you're young, you put like sports cars on there. It's like, there is a threshold where you reach a certain age where you're just like, I just want a really fancy, nice, comfort, not comfortable toilet, right? Because you just spend a lot of time in the bathroom or whatever. But even if you like don't play the lottery, like we all play that silly game of like, what if I won the lottery and there's no chance you could win the lottery because you, you, know, you don't play the lottery. But we, we all dream what we might do with the money. And, and, and it's easy to feel like right, the, really the only problem anybody ever has when it comes to money is they don't have enough. And honestly, when you say it out loud, I mean, that kind of seems silly, right? Because it's not even close to being that simple. In fact, a lot of us have known families, and I've known families, where having enough money wasn't the money problem in their family. They had more than enough money, but things were just as complicated for them when it came to finances and money stuff as it was for us. There was still tons of tension around how it was being spent and who was using it for what. It was still messing up and messing with the relationships in the family. Someone in the family was leveraging it to control or punish somebody else or manipulate somebody else. And so we internalize a lot of complicated messages about money. Like, like we, we internalize things like, well, it's awesome, but it's also a problem. There's never enough, and even when there's enough, there's not enough. 
Right? They're, they're, or, or there's no way to talk about it without everybody getting angry and it just kind of ruining everything. I mean, if you're married or in a relationship, I think if we're honest, a lot of us don't feel comfortable talking to our spouse or our significant other about money, much less our kids, if we have kids. And so we just don't. It just doesn't come up. Just leave me alone. I'll figure it out. I'll leave you alone. You figure it out. The problem is that the whole, like, just figuring it out on your own thing really isn't working. I mean, if you just look around our culture, the overwhelming majority of us live paycheck to paycheck, and we have, you know, more debt or just financial regret or stress than we know what to do with. We have stress and pressure that we don't talk about. Or even if we don't have all of those things, it's messing with us. It was messing with our own sense of worth. It's messing with our relationships. And so that's actually one of the reasons that I think some of us don't talk about money with our kids is like we don't, we don't always feel like we know what we're doing. Or, or maybe worse, we feel like we know what to do, but we somehow still don't. And things are still kind of messed up. And we look at it and we're like, my issue is not that I don't make enough money. My issue is that I just, I don't, I don't know what my issue is. And so that's why we're doing this series. So that we can actually have some of the conversations that maybe we should have had growing up. So we can talk about things that we wish somebody would have actually talk about, talked about with us. That we can dive into stuff that we wish somebody would have told us. It would have saved us a lot of heartache. And, and honestly, if you're a parent, so that we can equip you to have those conversations with your kids. Like, like I, I wonder if, if you've ever stopped to think about it, but, but what is your philosophy of money? What is your philosophy when it comes to your stuff, when it comes to your finances? Most of us would probably say we don't really have a philosophy. But the truth is, whether you realize it or not, you have a philosophy of money. It might be as simple as, I need more of it. Right? But that's a philosophy. I mean, there's, there's a, actually a lot of really practical things that we could talk about this month, and we're actually going to dive into some of it. But I, I wanted to start here because I think this is actually where all of our problems begin, is at the foundation, at the philosophy, at our thought process when it comes to our finances and money. Because like almost everything else in our lives, if we don't determine our own philosophy of money, we will automatically default to the one that's just sort of handed to us from our surroundings, from our culture. And that's true of almost anything, but it's certainly true when it comes to money. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, there's a guy named Paul, and he's writing this letter, and he's, if, you've, if you're familiar with the scriptures, the book of Romans, he's like unpacking all these deep theological things, and he's writing these, this letter to the Christians, that, the early Jesus followers that are in the city of Rome. And in the letter, he writes these words in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, notice in that verse, notice in the statement, notice in the thing that he's saying that there's really only two options, to conform or to transform. We're always doing one, of the, one or the other. I mean, think about that for, for a minute. When it comes to your relationships and money and values and morals, all of it, your whole life, if we don't choose the way of Jesus, we will end up conforming to the culture around us. Those are your two options, conform or transform. 
so that my heart and my mind and my thoughts and my attitudes and my actions are always moving one direction or the other. They're always being shaped and informed by something. They're being conformed or they're being transformed. And this guy, Paul, in this verse, he says that there's a pattern. There's a philosophy, an approach, a way of being, a way of thinking. And there's a giant gravitational pull towards that pattern. And it's so powerful that conforming happens naturally. You don't have to try. You don't have to think about it. In fact, it happens without you even knowing it, that you're being pulled towards that pattern and conforming towards that pattern. And I think if most of us were honest, like, we'd have to admit that this has happened to us in some area of our life, probably financially too, that we've gradually conformed to our culture's philosophy of money. And that just simply means that our attitudes, our desires, our dreams, our approach to how we approach our finances, how we think about things, what, we, what we're trying to accomplish when it comes to our stuff, like it's really just, we've just kind of adopted what our culture has said, this is what it should be. And it's not hard to understand why, like we're surrounded by it. We're swimming in it. We can't escape it. And so even though we don't want our lives and our families to be defined in this way, the undercurrent of that pattern drags us towards materialism and comparison and selfishness and ultimately towards greed. Conforming happens naturally, but transforming Transforming is different. It takes intentional focus and energy. He calls it renewing our minds. And isn't it strange? This is one of the most incredible scriptures in the whole New Testament to me. Because you would think, he says, be transformed. It's a command, right? You would think that transformation that's not something, like there's a lot of things that were, are within our power. There's a lot of things, if you're a follower of Jesus, that you can do, but transforming yourself would not be one of them. That feels like that's reserved for God, that God comes in and changes us and transforms us. But here he says, you be transformed. You transform your life by your mind, by the way that you think, by your philosophy, by your attitudes being changed and renewed and shaped by a different pattern than the one that comes naturally. And then he uses the word then, meaning that what he's about to say is conditional on that first part that he just mentioned. It's conditional on us being transformed. And he says, then you'll be able to see. Then you'll be able to know and understand God's way. Then you'll be able to understand what God's asking of you and how to align your life with him. Have you ever read something that God says in the Bible or, or you hear somebody like me at church talk about something or God's way of doing something, and you're like, mm, yeah, nah, no thanks. I, I've done that. I, I think not only there's moments where we read things or we hear things, and it just does not, it doesn't make sense. It kind of just seems backwards, like, yeah, that's a nice thought. But in the real world, it doesn't work like that. See, that kind of thinking is what Paul's describing here. That there's this pattern, the world has a pattern, and that God has a pattern. And because we're broken, God's pattern is the one that doesn't make sense to us. And so we're like, ah, I don't think so. Like, I mean, I like that and this and this over here, but the rest of that, you're good, God. Right? In fact, 
maybe that's the most insidious part of what the Apostle Paul's talking about. He's saying that the more we are conformed to the pattern around us, the more distorted our ability to see each pattern for what it is becomes. But as our minds are renewed, as our hearts and our attitudes are transformed, we actually can see more clearly and understand more fully what it is that's happening to us. And we can go, oh, now that, okay, I'm going to go that way. That's a better way of living. That's a better way of operating. That's a better approach. That's a better philosophy. That's a better pattern. Specifically for this conversation, the more we align our philosophy of money with God's philosophy, the more it makes sense to us and the more fulfilled and free we become. So then the question becomes, what is God's philosophy of money? And that's where we like go, oh, I don't know. Well, here's a simple rule of thumb. If you're new to church, if you're new to all this stuff, if you want to know what God thinks, look at what Jesus said. There's a great rule of thumb. If you're like, I wonder what God thinks about this. Did Jesus talk about it? Look at what Jesus said. And honestly, when you look at Jesus' life, when you read the Gospels, you look through the things that Jesus said, it's not hard to find stuff that Jesus said about money. It's something that he talked about almost more than anything else. Um, depending on like, how you count them, Jesus told like 35 to 38 parables which are these stories that illustrate God's kingdom and what his philosophy is like and what we're supposed to be doing in the meantime between now and, you know, when he comes or when we die. And out of those 30-some-odd parables, 16 of them, 16 of them had to do with money and possessions. But here's the most interesting part and why, if you're a little skeptical or you're a little defensive about where all this is going, like you can just take a deep breath and relax. Although Jesus talked about it all the time, he never once asked anyone for money. He never asked for it from anybody. I mean, there was a one time where he was like, anybody got a coin? Okay, give me that coin. And he did this little, you know, trick. Not, not quite, but he used it as an illustration. And then he gave it back to them. There was another time where he needed a coin and he's like, hey, go over and grab that fish and pull a coin out of its mouth. Like he didn't, he, he didn't ever take anybody's money. And so his longest sermon on money is found in Matthew chapter six. And it actually didn't involve any of his parables or stories, but it definitely lays out the crux of his financial philosophy. And, and a lot of these verses are pretty famous. Even if you're not like a church person, you're not, haven't read the Bible a ton, you've probably heard some of them. But Jesus said so many like brilliant, like reality-altering, hold-the-phone, whoa-wait-a-minute type things in this one short little burst that we hardly ever hear them all or read them all together. We usually just pull out one verse or one little chunk or one little truth at a time, but I think there's actually something really powerful when you hear everything that Jesus said in this section all together because then you get a better sense of what is God's philosophy of money. So here it is, Matthew chapter 6, beginning, excuse me, beginning with verse 19. Jesus said this, Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal them. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. 
When your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light that you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate the one and love the other. You will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you think you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear, is not life more than food and your body more than clothing? Of course, the answer to that is, of course, life is more than those things. He says, look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns. Your heavenly Father feeds them, and aren't you more valuable to him than they are? Of course, the answer to that question is, of course you are. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon, in all of his glory, all of his splendor, was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and then thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above everything else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own troubles. Today's trouble is enough for today. And ain't that the truth? And so this is absolutely brilliant, and I would not presume to think that I could add anything that would somehow improve on what Jesus says here. But I do want to spend just a couple of minutes before we finish up digging into some of what he says. And so he opens with moths and rust and thieves. And he says there's really only a couple of things that you can spend money on. You can spend money on things that don't last, and you can spend money on things that last. Those are your options. And he describes the first one, the things that don't last, basically is that anything that can be eaten, stolen, or rotten. And notice these things aren't bad or evil or wrong. He doesn't say that. In fact, everything that's kind of necessary for us to stay alive, for living, falls into that category. Stuff that you need to eat and clothing. And... But Jesus is going, that's great, it's fine, but that shouldn't be where all your focus is. That shouldn't be the, the, the point of what you're doing with all of your stuff, that it's invested in things that will not last. He's going, there's a certain amount of treasure that has to be spent there. There's no way around it. But treasure that's spent there, it's all used up. When it's gone, it's gone. And then on the other side, he compares that to things that do last. See, whatever treasure that is used to give and help and love and heal and bless and serve other people, to point people to God's love. It isn't used up. It isn't gone. It's actually stored up, and it lives on. It echoes into eternity that somehow it's translated through time and space from here over there. 
and it can never be taken from you. And then he says maybe the most well-known line in this whole passage. He says, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Your heart will always follow your treasure. So there's only two things you can spend money on, right? Things that last, things that don't last. And and the reason that 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 matters is that there's this feedback loop between us and our money. There's this circular relationship that we have, that you will care about what you spend money on, and you will spend money on what you care about. And it just goes around and around and around. You will spend money on what you care about, and you will care about what you spend money on. And this isn't like a little incidental detail that Jesus is describing. The implications of it are huge, right? Because what it, what it means is that we can look around at our lives, we can look around at the lives around us, and that you can tell what matters to somebody by the way that they spend their money. Because you spend money on what you care about, and you care about what you spend money on. It, it also means that we can actually train ourselves to care about something we don't currently care about simply by contributing to it simply by giving, it to, giving towards it, simply by taking some of our money and spending money on it. That we can actually move our heart in a direction that it's not inclined to go by moving some of our treasure that direction. And then, then comes these weird verses about our eyes that kind of seem out of place where he says the eye is the lamp of the body and if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness and There's actually a lot of kind of ancient wordplay that's going on here that Jesus is talking. But the essence of what he's saying is this, that you, that me, that us, like we have a philosophy of money and that philosophy will inform and impact every other area of your life. That if you live with your hands wide open, that that's just not gonna be something that that occurs in one area of your life. That you're gonna live, you're gonna move into generosity when it comes to your relationships. You're gonna move into generosity when it comes to your neighbors. You're gonna move into generosity with the way that you approach everything in life. And how could it not? How could it not inform and impact every other area of our life? See, the the way that you and I see money is connected to how you see yourself. It's connected to how you see the world. It's connected to how you see God, how you see other people. It's connected to where and how you live and work and spend and save and give. It's connected to every part of your life. It's no wonder that the very next thing Jesus said is that you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money, which is such an odd, strange thing for Jesus to have said. Because if we were saying it, we would go like, you can't serve God and, and the devil, or you can't serve God and yourself, or you can't serve you know, God and, and evil. But he says you can't serve God and money. And no doubt about it, that language is uncomfortable. It's kind of confusing. I mean, none of us really feel like, I mean, he just said, like, you can't serve two masters. Like, raise your hand if you feel like you have a master. Like, none of us feel like we have a master. Like, I know I don't. But I also know that, know that Jesus knows better than I do, and that I'm constantly being pulled to conform to a pattern that I can't see that I'm barely aware of ever. See, a master is somebody that, that, that some, someone or something that gives orders, that sets boundaries, and dictates terms. That's what a master is. And if that's true, that we all have a master, for most of us, the best case scenario in our mind is that the master of us is us, that we're the master of our lives, which is, I think, kind of funny, because if I had ever hired me to be the master of my life, to run my life, I would have fired me a long time ago 
filed a claim for a refund, and I would have gone online and left a scathing one-star review about me. Yeah, this Randy guy, he's a disaster. Do not hire this guy as a master. When it comes to being a master, I would give Randy zero stars if I could. Talk about running things into the ground. This guy doesn't have a clue. Signed, Randy. Don't hire Randy. Signed, Randy. See, as bad as we are at running things, it's actually worse than that. Because for most of us, the thing that's determining the direction of our life, the thing that's defining the boundaries of our life, the thing that's dictating the terms of our lives, our relationships, where we live, where we work, what we do, it's, it's our money. It's our money situation. It, that is the thing that's determining all of those things. Which doesn't feel off to us because we look around and, well, that's, what, that's the case with everybody else. That's the pattern. That's, that's normal. It's the pattern of the world around us. All we did was conform to that pattern. Jesus would say, look, you don't realize it, but money has become your master. And then he like doubles down and says something really uncomfortable. He places money as God's number one competitor for the dominant force in our lives. Just let that like sink in for a minute. You can't serve God and money. Those are the two sort of competitors that are vying for your attention and your passions and your allegiance. And remember, like, if you're not, so if you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, like, you're off the hook. Like, none of this is really for you. Like, you can actually take some of this stuff and start to internalize it and maybe take some of the things Jesus is saying and begin to put them into practice in your life. But everybody that he was talking to, they believed in God. These were people of faith. This is who the audience was. And so it's not like, it's not like if you're a follower of Jesus, like you're like, ah, I got this thing whipped. It clearly, I've already decided who my master is. It's Jesus. And he would go, hold on. Let's talk about finances. <laughs> because that's everybody who was in the audience that day was already a believer. Everybody who was in the audience that day would say, money's not my master. God's my master. truth is there's an ongoing struggle in your life and in my life for who or what is going to be the driving force of your life, God or money. And a lot of times, I'll just speak for myself, there's been a lot of times in my life where those two things come into conflict with one another. God, I'd like to do that. I'd like to help them. I'd like to be more generous there. But I've, I've managed my money in a way that my money won't let me do that. I'm stuck over here. I got to do this. I got to do what the bank tells me to do. I can't do what you tell me to do. I got to do this. We don't have time to get into this. And Jesus goes into this long and beautiful explanation of what life looks like when we begin to trust God and align our philosophy of money with his. He says some stuff about like birds and flowers that sound like poetry from a guy who lied to get his medical marijuana card. But he's describing a life that's fulfilled and content and at peace. And at the end of all of that, he gives us this crescendo, this master stroke, the thesis for his whole money talk. It's all building up to this point. 
his whole philosophy. Here it is, verse 33. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. Oh, that's it? That's all? Seek God and live righteously? That's all I got to do? I mean, I don't know about you, but when I read something like this where it seems like what God is saying and what God's promising, it depends on my ability to live righteously, my thought is always like, guess I'm screwed on that one. Right? Like if God giving me everything I need is dependent on my ability to be, to be righteous, I guess I'm on my own. But that's not the idea here. The idea that he's conveying is actually similar to what we saw in Romans. It's the idea is that God's got a pattern, a design, a value system, a philosophy of life, yes, but for money, too. For what it's for and how to use it and how to relate to it about its proper place in our life. And if we will begin living according to his philosophy, according to his values, what we'll discover is that he'll take care of everything else. That we won't actually have to run after and chase after all the things we spend all of our time running after and chasing after. Which is incredibly powerful if it's true. The question is, why, why would we listen to Jesus about this? Well, look around. What's normal is broken. What we're doing ain't working. It's not happening. See, the promise that Jesus is making isn't this. It's not, it's not if you handle money my way, I'll give you a lot more money. That's not the promise. And that there's, you've probably, maybe you've experienced some church that said that, that that's, that's, that's what God says. That if you'll do things my way, I'll bless you and give you more money. And we always define blessing as more money. But that is not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is if you handle money my way, you'll find that fulfillment and contentment and peace will begin to flood into your life. And because our brains are sort of conformed to the pattern over here, we interpret that to mean, well, that means I'll have more money so that I can be content and fulfilled and have peace. And he's going, nah, maybe, maybe not. Like if we had a magic button in a box up here, and I was like, this magic button, if you push this button just for today, you'll be completely fulfilled and content and peaceful. Just for today. Just for today. When your neighbor pulls up in their new car, you're not just going to be like, shoot. Babe, look at the, look what they got. Right? Or you're scrolling through Amazon. You're not going to be like looking through your save for later list and just buying things you don't need. Right, you see that ad on Instagram? I've been one of those people. I was like, that looks amazing. Hans is like, where did this come from? I don't know. I saw an ad on Instagram. <laughs> right, but, but, but for one day, you push the button, and none of that. Like, you would be just completely content, completely fulfilled. Like, would you push it? I think if we were honest, we'd go, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But here's what I know. Even if you were skeptical of this button, if there was a chance that it was true, you'd drag your husband or you'd drag your wife or you'd go get your kids out of kids and you'd bring them up here just in case and you'd be like, push it, push it. And he's like, you can't push it for him. He's got to push it. Push it, push that button. 
Why? Because we understand in our gut that the relentless pursuit of more is corrosive to our souls. That it's not that, that that's not how we want our kids to grow up and live. That's not how we want to live. But so often it's how exactly how we live. I think we have this like funny relationship with the word spoiled in our culture. Because it used to be a long time ago that describing a child as spoiled was like really, really negative. And now we still use it in a negative way as long as it's about somebody else's kids. But when it comes to our kids, we're like, well, you know, I want them to have it better than we had it. And if I'm a grandpa, I'm going to spoil them. If I'm, a, you know, I'm going to spoil, we, we can spoil, just you got to spoil them. You only have them for so long. Spoil them, spoil them, spoil them. And what's funny is like the only other time we use the word spoiled in our language, in the English language, is when it comes to food. And when it's rotten and it's not good for us and it's disgusting and it stinks and it makes you sick. And yet we're willing to go, ah, I'll just spoil my kids. And so Jesus is saying, look, fulfillment, contentment, peace, they come from not from getting everything you want, but from aligning what you say that you value with the way that you actually live your life. And I think if most of us were honest, what we say we value and how we handle money are often at odds with one another. Not because we intend them to do, not because we're, not because we're phony or fake, but it's just because we're, there's a pattern that we're kind of following over here that, live, that, that causes us to live in exact opposition to what we say we value. And here's the thing. The only way to change it is to actually begin to have honest conversations about it, to stop, and pro, stop the process of conforming and begin to transform your own heart and your own life and your own family when it comes to your philosophy of how you handle finances. So start talking about it. Don't just think about what we're talking about today. Don't just think about it. Don't go, you know, don't, don't pray, but talk about it. If you're married, talk about it with your spouse. If you have kids, bring them into the conversation. Include your family. Include all the, the, the stakeholders in that conversation. Talk about money and what's it for and what it's not for and what your philosophy is and maybe how some things need to change. Because every single conversation about money is actually a conversation about what we value, right? And so I, I want to challenge you to do something totally crazy right here at the beginning of this month. I want to challenge you to go pull up your bank app this week, print off like four, five, six months worth of statements, and just sit down, sit down together with your bank statements and just make a list of what the values that you see reflected in your, in your spending, right? what values you see reflected in your bank statements. No judgment, no defensiveness, no like, well, it was a weird month and we spent a little. No, you don't need to do it. It's just an audit. You're not like feeling terrible about anything. You're just, audit, you're just auditing your own values. And I don't know what you're going to find, and maybe you don't even know what you're going to find. But what you, what you might discover is that it might be time for you to begin to live according to a different philosophy of money. And I would like to suggest that you give Jesus' philosophy a shot. What have you got to lose? Finally, there's a prayer in Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verses 33 through 40. And I've adapted it a little bit for our purposes this month because maybe when it comes to this conversation, maybe 
you're like me. Because there's been times where I'm like, I don't know if I want this. I don't know if I want God's philosophy of money, but I, I know I want better than what I got. I, I, I think I want to want it. And so this is something that I'm going to be praying in my life all month long, and I wanted to share it with you, and I want to invite you to join me in praying this on a regular basis. Just when it comes to your life, when it comes to your stuff, when it comes to what's being conformed and what's being transformed, but this is, this is what it says. It says, God, teach me your ways, and I will practice them. Tell me the truth and I will believe it. Help me to walk in your wisdom, because that's where fulfillment is found. Help me long for what's right, and not fixate on what I want next. Remind me of your vision for my life. Give me the courage to change for the better, and focus my attention on your faithfulness. That's a prayer I'm going to pray every single day this month, and I want to invite you to pray it with me. Let's pray together.